Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It helps to know where you're going. It helps to know where you're going. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be taken on trips with no idea what the destination is. I really like to know where I'm going. That's true in, in any situation. I think it's true in church as well. It's important for a church to know where it's going. It's important for people to know where is the church heading. So one of the things we talk about a lot at Grace is kind of our, our vision of what the church is about and the kind of church that we want to be. The reason for that is so that you have a sense of where we're going. It's important in the church with a capital C as well that we know where we're going. A lot of times we don't think of church that way as having a destination or, or a point. It's a duty. You're, you're meant to go to church, but we don't think a lot about what church is for, where it's heading. So what I want to do Before looking at what Paul says about sin, first, I want to look at what Paul tells us about where we're going, what our destination is. So I want to begin not in Romans, but in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we won't read the entire passage, but Philippians chapter 2 gives this rich Christological vision, this picture of who Jesus is. But in doing that, it also gives us a kind of roadmap, a sense of what our destination is in the church. So we're kind of picking up in midstream with what Paul says. He begins Philippians chapter 2, holding up Christ's example really as a way of, of showing people how to live. You know, you should live at peace with one another. You should love one another. You should do these things because of the example of Christ. And then Paul does something that we don't often do. Paul, in order to explain a very practical point, starts getting into what we might regard as esoteric theology. We tend to imagine that there's a wide gulf between how you live your life and these sort of big theological abstractions. But for Paul, in order to demonstrate how to be a Christian, he has to go to his theology of Christ because that's where these answers are found. So we'll pick up in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in those words, which are are Christology, it's it's the doctrine of Jesus, but in those words there is a, a roadmap and a destination. There's a trajectory. He talks about the road, and it consists of Christ's incarnation. He found himself in form, in fashion as a man. He was fully human. He was one of us. That's part of this destination, this road that's taking us where we're meant to go. Not only was he incarnate, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, Christ's obedience, his perfect righteousness. 
that we alluded to at the beginning of our service, that was an important part of the road that we're traveling on. His death and obedience even to the point of death on the cross. A death that was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That too was building this road. His exaltation. Because of what he did, God has exalted him. He's given him the name that is above every name. That too is part of the road that we travel. But where is it going? Where is it going? So that, Paul says, so that every knee should bow. So that every tongue confesses. That's the destination. That's where we're going. The road that Jesus Christ has paved with his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, leads us to worship. That's the destination. That's where we're heading as a people, as a church, to worship. The end result is every knee bowed. The end result is is every voice lifted up in praise to confess the greatness of Christ. That voice of praise, every tongue confessing, that's where all of this is leading. That voice, what you hear in that voice of praise, you hear reconciliation. But that is the song you sing when you've been reconciled to God. The alienation that sin brings into the relationship we have with God is removed. And we can sing. We can confess his name as a result. The voice of praise also speaks to a restoration of all that we lost in sin. That's a song that you sing when your humanity has been restored. When what was taken from you by your sin has been handed back. You've been healed, remade, the restoration of that humanity, and also of life everlasting, the life for which we were made. When it's ours again, we sing. We lift up our voices in praise. Every tongue confesses. That's the destination. But, but in Romans 3, you find, Paul says, there's, there's something standing in the way. This is not just a, a straight path that we can travel down and easily arrive at the place where we're meant to be. There's an obstacle in the path. There's something that prevents us from singing. Something stands in the way. So when you look at Romans 9, you look at our text, he begins, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he describes that statement not as a doctrine, not as a theological point, not as a a concept you need to familiarize yourself with, but as a charge. A charge. The word translated charge here, it's forensic language. It is the kind of language you would use when you're thinking about a courtroom. And Paul has already spoken to us of the idea of judgment. Right? There is a judgment that is to come. There is a judgment in the future. And while we as sinners look forward to that judgment with, with trepidation, we discussed how it's important for us as Christians to see that what that judgment promises is actually justice. But when you go into the 
throne room of God, the, the courtroom of God, if you will, what is meted out there is justice. The judge of all the world does right. That's what's happening in the courtroom of God. And the charge that is laid is that all are under sin. All are under sin. To say that we're under sin, Jew and Gentile without distinction, all of us, all human beings, are under sin. He's saying we are under the reign of sin. Sin rules over us. We are under it. We are beneath its weight. To be under sin means to be wholly corrupted by it. We're fully under the the reign, the authority of sin. Now, Paul makes the charge, but as you do in court, you don't just make charges, you also give evidence. And so that's what Paul does. He gives evidence of the charge that he's just made. And the evidence he gives is, is interesting because he draws on a source, an authoritative source, in order to, to prove the case, he draws on Scripture. So what you see in your text, in your order of worship, what it looks like Paul is doing is quoting like one long passage of Scripture. And if you're accustomed to the way that these things are formatted in the New Testament, you would expect, okay, well, this is, this is going to be a quote from the Old Testament, and that's true, but it's not exactly what it seems. If you pay close attention your English punctuation, you'll see the quotation marks keep opening and closing, opening and closing. What you're looking at is not a quotation from the Old Testament. What you're looking at is an amalgamation of quotations from the Old Testament. Paul is proof texting. Paul is is pouring on references from the Old Testament. He sort of made a, a, a list of evidence, mainly out of the Psalms, And that's what you find him giving to us. As it is written, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's quoting here, actually from two Psalms, uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which, which open with the same words, These are the ones that famously begin, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's where this idea comes from. None is righteous, no, not one. Not some people are sinful and other people's are not, but no one is righteous. If righteousness is what saves, we've got a problem because no one is righteous, no one understands, no one is seeking God out of the goodness of their heart. Instead, together, we've all turned away. We've all become, he says, worthless. In the eyes of God, our works are like nothing. No one does good, not even one. He carves out no exception. The best person you can think of does not merit an exception here. All of us, all of us are included. All of us are under sin. Their throats, he says, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Here he's drawing this idea from Psalm 5, verse 9. Their throat is an open grave. If you think about that, if you just picture that metaphor, the idea that that if you were looking at yourself in the mirror and you started to to shout and you opened your mouth and you you picture your mouth as an open grave, 
I mean, the open grave, as you stand at the open grave, you might picture it the way we do, a, a hole in the ground six feet deep. You might picture it in the ancient way as, as like a, a hole in, in the side of a mountain, you know, a, a tomb with, with an, a rocky opening. In, in both instances, what lies beyond is death. To say that, that our very words are like the grave opening up, speaking death into the world. They use their tongues to deceive. Drawing on Psalm 140, he says, the venom of asps is under their lips. Just saying that in English sounds serpentine. Comparing human beings with the offspring of of the serpent, that, that we speak poisoned words, we speak death into the world. Drawing from Psalm 10.7, he says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's not just the words, though. Continues, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Here he's, he's paraphrasing, putting together ideas that you would find in the book of Proverbs 1.16, but also in Isaiah 57. Putting those together, so it's not just the words, it's also the deeds, it's the path we walk that is corrupt. And finally, from Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The last charge is the worst. The last piece of evidence is the one that puts, so to speak, the nail in the coffin. All of this proceeds from the fact that there's no fear of God in us. Like We do these things, we do them willingly, we do them openly, we do them proudly. Because we are not afraid of the consequences. We don't see the problem. It's striking to me that when Paul is is giving the evidence, the place that he draws from in the Old Testament is primarily the Psalms. Because what he's doing is he's using your songbook against you. The songs are the worship songs. The Psalms are the worship songs of the Old Covenant Church. These are the songs you grew up singing. Most of what you know about your faith, about who God is, about who you are, you know because you've learned them in song. You may forget a lot of stuff, but but in your old age, you will remember like the lyrics, the random songs of your youth. And, And those songs that taught them how to worship, those songs that taught them who God was, that defined who they were as the people of God, these are the songs he uses to demonstrate that they, like everybody else, are under condemnation. Your own mouths have condemned you. The evidence of your own songs is against you. And what those songs, the the portrait that they paint of the human condition that portrait's something that we call in theology total depravity. Total depravity. It sounds so bad, and, and it is, but it doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like it means. When we say that, that people are totally depraved, we, we don't mean, obviously, that they're as bad as they could possibly be. No one is as bad as they could possibly be. The grace of God has a remarkable restraining influence on us all. But all of us are completely under the influence of sin. Totally, completely under that influence. There's not a part of us, in other words, that has emerged unscathed. 
Right? You can't look at yourself and say, okay, look, I, I see the, the corruption and consequences of sin in my physical body. Obviously, it's far from perfect. But within me still shines the pure light. No, it doesn't. Even, even within you, there is corruption. Throughout the human being, there is this fallenness. So that none are righteous, no one is excluded from that condemnation, but also all are corrupt completely. There is no understanding, not partial understanding, no understanding. There is no understanding. No one seeks after God. There isn't this sort of inner goodness drawing me towards God. It doesn't exist according to the Psalms. There's an implication here too, though. There's an implication. If this is true, then salvation from sin cannot come from within the person. If it is true that we are completely corrupt, completely under the sway of sin, then salvation from sin must come from outside the person. The problem is we're still clinging to the thought that it could come from within, that it could be something we might do on our own entirely, perhaps, or maybe with a little help from God, we might still accomplish this work. And that's the obstacle. That's why Paul has to talk at length about sin and its consequences the way that he has, because we cling tenaciously to the hope that there might be some other way. Within us, there might be some way to find salvation from our sin. As I said already, the end of the gospel, the destination of the gospel is worship. Like to, to lift up our voices in praise, every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord, but something stands in the way. There's another voice you might think of. Another voice. We can't sing the praise we should because our mouths are too busy with something else. Let's call it the voice of self-justification. The voice of self-justification, which I acknowledge is an awkward term. As an English major, it pains me to, to say the voice of self-justification as if it's, it's going to stick in your mind. But sometimes things that are awkwardly phrased because of their awkwardness do lodge in the mind. And I hope this will lodge in your mind. There is a voice of self-justification that comes naturally to us when we we open up the open graves of our mouths, what proceeds from them is this voice. Self-justification, I think, is an awkward but good term because there's two meanings here. There's two meanings to justifying yourself. On one level, the voice of self-justification, what I'm talking about is, is the voice in your head or on your lips that is always making excuses or the bad things that you've done. You don't need to be a pastor to realize this, but, but it does make it impossible once you become a pastor to ignore it. But everybody has a reason for the bad things they've done. Everybody has an excuse. No one sins because they're bad people. The most terrible things people have done, if you ask them to explain what happened, it'll turn out... They, they had good reasons, and, and if you were in their circumstance, let them explain. You probably would have done the same thing. In fact, you might have done worse, 
they probably weren't as bad as you would have been in that situation. Just ask, and, and you'll have it explained to you. The voice of self-justification is the voice that's always trying to talk your way out of confessing. To talk yourself out of admitting what you've done, staring it head on. There are always reasons, there are justifications, there are, are, are you know, there's a context that, that if you just are able to explain it, the, the sharp edge of your sin would be blunted. And people would understand it's not as bad as it seems. We're always justifying ourselves to one another. We justify ourselves to ourselves. In other people, if they did what, what we've done, we would say those people, there's something wrong with them. But when we do it, we recognize it's a little bit different. Right? We had our reasons. Self-justification. But if you think about it, I mean, that awkward term literally, in, in, in Christian theological terms, justification is a gracious act of God by which we are made just before the righteous judge of all things. Self-justification, literally, would be saving yourself. Saving yourself. You might think about it this way. The voice of self-justification is the voice of your sin telling you, let me handle this. When you're faced with an accusation, when you're faced with a charge like the one that Paul is making, the voice of sin inside says, let me do the talking. Don't worry about this. I will answer this. I will answer the charge. And we are convinced that if we just have our say, we will be able to get out of it. We will be able to escape. But the reality is this. You will never lift your voice up in praise until the voice of self-justification has been silenced. Before praise... There has to be silence. There has to be silence. That's where the law comes in. Paul says the law of God was given and it has a job to do and its job is to shut your mouth. The the job of the law is to shut you up. Now we know, he says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This is an easy sentiment for us to misunderstand. I think we might tend to think that what he's saying here is, okay, the law only applies to those who have the law. If you didn't receive the law, i.e. if you're a Gentile, not a Jew, then the law doesn't speak to you. It doesn't apply to you. But that's not what he's getting at here. He's speaking to a self-righteous person, to uh, the, the outward Jew that he talked about earlier. right? And what he's saying is, just because you've received the law doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. That's nonsense. The tendency was to say all of the condemnations of the law are a description of the sins of the Gentiles. It shows how bad they are. Paul says it makes no sense that that every time in the law you find condemnation, you apply it to them. If you were the one the law was given to, then the law applies to you. You might think of it this way. Um, A lot of people break the law. We're talking here about civil law. A lot of people break the law. I realize April 15th is is looming on the horizon, and maybe we don't want to 
talk about this, but, uh, but a lot of people don't follow the law. We recognize there's a lot of lawlessness. Everyone who breaks the law around this time of year has good reason to. Nobody's doing it because they're bad. They're just doing it because the system is broken. Because what else could they do? Right? It's just the way it is. Everybody's actually doing it. You'd be a chump not to be doing it, actually, if you think about it. There's always a reason. There's always a rationale. But, but, but whose offenses are most offensive to us? The offenses of hypocrites. We recognize we're surrounded by corrupt people, but, but if those people are the ones who wear the badges, if the ones who are breaking the law are, the, are also the officers of the court, doesn't that stink a little more? Doesn't that kind of corruption offend you just a little bit more? Like people are doing bad things, but I don't want the corrupt people to be the, the cops or the lawyers, right? See the idea? But if you talk to them, if you talk to those people, you, you may find out, if you talk to the corrupt policeman, you might find out that sometimes you have to do bad things so that good can prevail. No corrupt police officer is corrupt because they're bad. They're corrupt because they're trying to do the right thing in a bad situation. The problem is not realizing that's true for everybody else as well. But the hypocrite is the one who says, I believe in the law, I think the law is good, and I think everybody should follow the law, but occasionally you've got to do bad things for the greater good. And when it's that situation, like it is with me, you get a pass. The blindness there is, is in not imagining that the other person, like the bad person that, that you easily condemn, sees it exactly the same way. The only reason they did what they did was so that some greater good could come about. And our sin, our, our, our rationales, our justifications come from the fact that we just don't put ourselves in the place of other people. It's easy to understand that they do bad things because they're bad people. We do bad things because bad things sometimes have to be done even by good people. The purpose of the law isn't to shut them up, to shut us all up. Everybody's excuses. That every mouth may be stopped. That there can be silence in court so that justice may be done. If you want to understand this silence, the silence, the silence that Paul is talking about here with the stopping of mouths is the silence of Job. If you go back and you read the book of Job, like the narrative, the, the arc of the book of Job, it's fascinating because Job is a man that we know is suffering without deserving what he gets. He's a righteous man. He's not suffering because he's done bad things, as his friends suppose. So from Job chapter 3 all the way through towards the end of the book, chapter 38, Job is essentially having a philosophical dialogue about why he doesn't deserve what's happening to him. And his friends are trying to convince him he does deserve what's happening to him. It's fascinating because you know that his friends are wrong and that Job is right. So when Job says things like, uh, if only I could have my day in court, if only I could speak in the presence of God, I would be vindicated. You read those words and you're like, actually, he's right. He's right. I can sympathize because I too suffer unjustly. 
I too do not deserve the bad things that happened to me. And if only God knew. If only I could explain to him the circumstances. Show him why my case is different than than he would agree and all these bad things would go away. I would be justified. And then, at the end of this philosophical conversation about the ways of God, God appears and starts speaking. And that shuts down the conversation. When God starts to speak, Job has an interesting reaction. Job, who's been waiting for this moment. Job, who wants nothing more than to be able to justify himself before God. When God actually starts talking, Job shuts up. Job keeps silent. In chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, it's described like this. God gives his first speech. He says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He lays his hand over his mouth. He won't speak. Because of the dramatic form of the way it's written, he has to tell you, I will speak no more. But uh, he shuts up. His mouth is stopped. Paul says, you've heard the law, but have you really listened? Have you really listened? Because if you've heard the law and you're still talking, that suggests to me that you haven't really heard it. Because if you had heard the indictment of the law of God, your mouth would have been stopped. You would have recognized your condemnation, and like Job, you would have laid your hand over your mouth. I'm of small account. What can I say? How can I answer this charge? In other words, Paul says, you're guilty and you know it. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Not salvation. The serpent and the garden had promised knowledge as a reward for disobedience, and he was half right. They did gain knowledge, but it wasn't a reward for disobedience. It was just a result of disobedience because the knowledge they gained was guilty knowledge. It was knowledge of shame. It was knowledge of the need to hide themselves from the God who had made them. What they came to know was their alienation, that because of sin, they would be kept from communion with him. But now... At this point in Romans 8, we are on the brink. We are on the edge of the most glorious transition. For weeks, we have been trudging through this indictment of sin. But all of it is about to change. It's like the clouds are about to open up. Because the the verse where we're ending here is like the the first punch in a one-two combination. Right? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be justified by works of the law. So shut up. So be silent. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to justify yourself. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying no human being will be justified. He's just saying it won't be by works of the law. It'll be by Christ. It will be by Christ. You won't be able to do it 
But that's okay because you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. You can be honest about your sin as we are when we confess our sin before God because you will be forgiven of that sin. You will not carry the weight of it. Jesus will. Jesus has. That's the good news of the gospel. You will be justified, not by works, but by grace. In our lectionary reading this morning, we read about the triumphal entry. We read from uh, Matthew's account, which is a wonderful account, but there is one note that Matthew doesn't sound. You have to go to Luke's gospel, Luke 19, to have this part of the story. Luke tells us that as Jesus was entering in triumph to Jerusalem, celebrating a victory, not yet won, as he's entering in in triumph, the people are singing hosannas. They are waving those palm branches as we have done here this morning. That's what's going on. And on the scene, there happen to be some Pharisees. Luke says the Pharisees witnessing this approach Jesus and say, you need to shut these people up. You need to close their mouths because these people singing hosannas are doing something wrong. They are worshiping a man on a donkey. You should only worship God. You should never worship a created being, and yet here they are singing hosannas to Jesus Christ in the flesh. They need to shut up. It's interesting to see the role reversal here between this and Romans 3, where the law in Romans 3 is is the, the thing that shuts you up, and the people who cling to justification by works of the law are the ones who are making excuses who won't shut up. Here, it's the people who, who are camping out on works righteousness who are saying, shut your mouths, shut your mouths, be quiet. Jesus doesn't say that, though. Jesus answers just the opposite. The command from Christ is not to be silent. The command is to cry out. These were silent, he says. The very stones would cry out. The rocks would cry out. All creation longs to lift its voice in praise of its glorious creator and redeemer. The voice of praise lifted up in the presence of Christ. That's what happened in the triumphal entry. A little taste of the destination. This is what it'll be like to be fully human to, to have restored to you what was taken from you, to have like your true voice cry out, would, would feel like that day in Jerusalem as the crowd cried out its hosannas. But to get there for us as sinners, we need that voice of self-justification to be quiet. We need the silence before we can find the voice of praise. If you want to take beautiful photographs, of the stars of the night sky, you have to get far enough away from the lights of the city. Right? All that light pollution, you have to get somewhere dark so that you can look up and see the sky for all its glory. You want to hear a still, small voice? You have to get out of the room where everybody's shouting. You get away from the noise in order to hear it. Similar principle here, only it's not external, but internal. To say what you were made to say as a human being, to say those words 
you first have to shut your mouth. You have to be willing to be silent on the day of accusation, not to make excuses. When you hear the mantra of self-justification on your lips, you have to do what Job does and cover them. And shut up. And stop trying to make excuses for yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. But instead, be silent. And let Christ save. Then you cry out the voice of praise. Be silent. Be silent in the face of the law. And in that silence, let the first word you speak be the name that is above all names. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.